This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Anishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee people. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this territory, even virtually, and to be in this community. We commit ourselves to the work of reconciliation among settlers and Indigenous peoples, and we acknowledge that not all settlers were brought here by choice. Through this land acknowledgement, our intent is to honor and show gratitude to the original and ongoing stewards of the land as a sign of respect and willingness to learn and heal. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together, may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to The Intersection, where we are building community through candid conversations that lift, inspire, and advance social change. I'm Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so happy to finally welcome Jen Love to The Hub and as a co-host this season. This episode is an intimate and real conversation between two women who have been friends for a long time. Jen is a storyteller, firefly chaser, dog walker, fierce mother, love warrior, and a loyal friend. In fact, Jen seems to have been part of every pivotal moment in my life over the past 15 years. We start with a discussion about the value or the harm of resilience. And that evolves into the importance of boundaries, feminism, the value of stepping back so that you can lean in, and the joy of finding your people. It's important to note that we start with Jen's story about how she started working in the charitable sector and following her father's footsteps. And for those of you who may not know, because we failed to mention it, Jen's father is David Love, well known to many as the godfather of good. But before we get started, Jen had one small addition she wanted to make to help set the context for this episode. So let's do that. Please join me in welcoming my friend Jen Love into the hub. So Jen, we just had this amazing conversation. And did. Um, do you want to do you want to set it up for us? Well, so what I want to set up is that that was a wonderful conversation and I hope it's helpful to people who are listening and, and tuning into this. The reason why I texted you as soon as we stopped hitting record is because I regret not saying very clearly that part of my whole approach for the last little while as I've been working through what's happening in our sector, what's happening in our world, what's happening in our lives is that two two things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. It is true that resilience is a skill and is an armor that we need in order to put one foot in front of the other one and get through what we're getting through. Mm -hmm. And resilience can also be a point of reflection around, wait a minute, why is it on me to be so resilient can I question or challenge what's happening that makes me need to be resilient? Mm-hmm. So we ended our conversation, which I loved. <laughs> and I texted you immediately to be like, ah, I wish I'd said that. So here I am on a reunion tour, like <laughs> encore. So having said all that, let's get into it. Jen, welcome to the hub. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to confess, I feel a little bit nervous. Really? Yeah. Our relationship is usually very private and we're recording a podcast today. So I feel nervous. So, so, okay. So let's do this. Um, Let's have a social contract with each other that if we start, if we start to get into um, uncomfortable territory, we'll just pass. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then we'll go on I actually missed what you just said you froze there oh I- okay well I said if we start to get into uncomfortable territory we'll just pass we'll just say pass we don't want to go there 
<laughs> that's fine. Um, all right. And so- I actually, I have to say, I'm feeling a little bit nervous too. Not yeah. nervous to talk to you because I talk to you a lot, yeah. but nervous because I think the the hub has continues to do a really good job of talking about big issues, but making bits of it relatable so that people can still see themselves in these stories. Um, and that's a big order. That's a tough, you know, I'm much more comfortable talking about stories for charities and donors. And that's really where I spend 80% of my time. So I feel a little bit nervous too, but it's, it's a good nervous. Yeah. Let's just sit with that for a little bit and see where it goes. Then um, we, we decided to do a podcast because, well, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be in this sector? So um, I came to be in this sector because I knew that I wanted to tell stories and I knew I wanted to create change. And I'm one of these rare people who is a second generation fundraiser. Um, So I knew that a career in the charitable sector existed and was rewarding and fulfilling um, for my dad. And so I, when I came out of university and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to tell stories and create change. Um, I knew I didn't want to go into social work and I didn't know I didn't want to go into anything like that. So fundraising very much was a perfect fit for me. And so I've worked in a variety of roles. I've worked as a consultant. I've worked as an embedded fundraiser. I've worked and existed as a volunteer Um, And for the last 10 years, I've been running a creative and storytelling firm called Agents of Good um, alongside my extremely talented business partner, John Lepp. Um, And today, our work is really focused around uh, storytelling for, you know, small and medium-sized organizations, mostly in social justice and environment, um, who are looking to do interesting things in their individual giving program that straddles kind of direct response and legacy giving. And so I spend most of my time talking to beneficiaries and talking to donors about the stories of their organizations, why their organizations matter and how donors can get involved and create change together. So that's the kind of nutshell. Hmm. Um, Do you wanna know the question that came to mind as you were talking? And I don't ever asked you this before. Oh, okay. I know. Um, you mentioned your dad, David Love, mm-hmm. godfather of good. And, legend. Uh-huh. And um, what was it like to, to follow your dad's path into this sector? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. To- my dad, for anybody who knows my dad, um, and even if you only know him by reputation, he is just one of the most open-hearted and curious people ever. And so I immediately felt like um, he was happy to create space with me and to support me and to encourage me, but that also he was going to learn from me and he wanted to see the world, the fundraising world, the way I was seeing it. Um, And so, I mean, from the very first, my very first job, he's always been a resource for me, both in terms of like, hey, how do I do this? Or what the hell is this? Or I've run into this and what should I do about it? And also to kind of share with him, like, hey, here's something that I'm thinking and seeing. What do you think? And he's like, I never thought of it that way. Or so it's been a very interesting evolution. Um, And, you know, I was just talking about this with my siblings not that long ago. And my sister said, I really envy that part of your relationship with dad because you you see a whole other side of dad that we know he's a legend and we know that people in the charitable sector love him and that he's, you know, a terrific, talented fundraiser, but you get to see it and that must be really neat for you. And, and it really is. It really is. Well, like your sister, I have to say over the years, I've been a little envious of it too, <laughs> to be honest. It's very special. Um, we were chatting a while back and I think it was one of those personal conversations we were having, but then I stopped and said, Oh no, we need to talk about this on a podcast. And I think it was around uh, the idea of glamorizing resilience in the charitable sector and how, yes, ma'am. how harmful that is. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think when you and I were talking about it, I mean, as as with a number of our conversations, you know, it sort of starts from this sort of kernel of truth, which I think we've all been experiencing since the start of the pandemic, which is that we've really been rewarding and glamorizing resilience in our kids, in our, and my kids are teenagers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am continually remarkable, remarkably stunned by their emotional intelligence and their resilience and their ability to create a worldview that now includes having two years of your life completely change or pause and be unpredictable and uncertain. And they, you know, roll along and they continue to be engaged, intelligent, thoughtful citizens of the world. Um, but it, it all comes from the same place of like, oh, the kids are all right. They're doing great. You know, yeah. this generation's just fine. And I think that really, I, I believe it to be true and I hope that it's true, but it also, the, the, the double edge of resilience is that resilience puts the burden on the person who's impacted or harmed mm -hmm. to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. You can do it. And that really puts the hair on the back of my neck up as a feminist, as a mother, as a, you know, person working through the world. Um, I think it just is too easy to say, you know, oh, you can do it. You're bright and capable and you'll be just fine. Um, and good for you for being resilient. And I just find something, there's something about that that is toxic. There's something about that that is like, um hiding the kind of oh the blame like the whoever and COVID has no blame you know this is where this gets starts to get unravelly really quickly because it, it's hard to say where to put the opposite of resilience but it shouldn't be on the shoulders of the people or communities being harmed yeah I think back I, I I've probably said this to my kids more than once and maybe maybe some of my staff uh toughen up buttercup Yep. Yep. You know, we just got so conditioned to think that that to do a good job, we needed to push through. Um, and and okay. I mean, we both. I want to talk about the op. What is? Let's explore what the opposite of resilience is. But I know we both have had periods of time in the last, however long we've known each other, where we've had to really just step back. Yes. And, um, but what is, what do you, what is the opposite of resilience? I mean, I guess the opposite of resilience would kind of be caving. Like yeah. the opposite of resilience would be capitulating yeah. and just, you know, letting whatever happens happens um, and not kind of kicking it down or challenging it or looking at it. And I don't know that we want to strive for an opposite of resilience, I, but I think we do need to renegotiate and renavigate what it means to glamorize resilience, especially among women mm. um, or, or whomever it is that are, that are emotional barometers in their household. Mm -hmm. um, oh, because I think nice, the way you said that who, who, whoever the emotional barometer is yeah, yeah whoever the emotional barometer because I think because that, that's the thing about the thing about saying to someone and like you I've said that to my kids too and I've said it to my colleagues and I've said it to people before toughen up buttercup you can do it you know she believed she could and so she did type stuff mm -hmm. um, which I think all is you know comes can come from a very good place but it also it also doesn't open up the, what I think is more rich and frankly, more sort of a place to learn from around the emotions you experience when you're going through that. So the, when someone says toughen up buttercup, another thing to say would be, why do you think you're feeling and responding this way? And, and how is this impacting you? Mm -hmm. As opposed to toughen up, you can do it. I just think that we're glossing over a whole bunch of rich emotional layers for the sake of not having to have those conversations because they're hard or because they're scary or because they're traumatic or because they're triggering. 
so you know there's another whole thing to unpack here which is around that kind of how do we have these conversations in a way that is emotionally open without being manipulative or um you know gets into weird areas of like am i comfortable talking about this do i want to be talking about this with these people at this time you know it really is a it's a it's a big bucket absolutely i mean emotionally open you're right it is a big bucket and and let i think we should acknowledge that resilience does serve in the sector does it does and so does grit you know some some of us i mean i certainly when i think back on my career my successes have been based on sheer grit there's no doubt about it and and i think that you're also speaking to the value of creating a safe culture in the workplace so if we are creating a safe culture in the workplace or we feel safe with each other then we can move forward in an open-hearted and authentic way yes and even if the outcomes are the same right right? which is you're able to say you know and, and this also ties into the whole nonprofit guild complex resilience also benefits nonprofit leaders and the entire patriarchal system in which we all participate mm-hmm. so women with grit serve the leaders and serve the system and when you're able to be somebody who is able to just bucket up and take it do those extra hours get pushed around or bullied or harassed by donors and you can just take it in because you're a tough lady you're serving the system that's also oppressing you yeah. in other ways. Yeah. So it actually, speaking of my dad, I have a funny little sidebar story about my dad. I was talking with my, one of my cousins is a very good friend of mine. I mean, we're very close. And so I had told my dad, he said, Oh, did you, how was your visit? And so I said, Oh, it was great. We had a wonderful time. We, you know, had delicious food and we talked about everything and, you know, we're, we're really ready to smash the patriarchy. Yeah. My dad was like, wait a minute. I'm a patriarch. Are you gonna smash me? <laughs> and I said, Dad, patriarch and patriarchy are different. Patriarchy is a system in which we all participate. And so, no, we're not coming to smash you. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's true, though, right? That that, this, that that the system that we've all been participating in um, has caused quite a lot of harm and damage. And sometimes you don't see that harm and damage when it's happening and it's compounding and it's, you know, the trauma that you don't realize you've dealt with. And we hear this a lot, unfortunately, in stories of bullying and harassment in the workplace is that you kind of come out of this fog and are able to look in hindsight and say, wow, I really took that on the chin and this has really impacted me. And I didn't have the language for how to talk about this because I was so busy putting my nose to the grindstone, getting my work done, pleasing my bosses, serving my charity, mm-hmm. furthering our mission. You know, it. when we lose those threads of, wait a minute, something's wrong here. My instincts are telling me that something's wrong and I don't know how to place it or don't know how to talk about it. We serve the system and not ourselves. Absolutely. And, and that is moving into the concept of creating boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and starting to feel more confident, maybe with age, certainly me at 53 is a lot more confident to, to know when my, like, there's something that happens with people who feel deeply something inside our bodies. <laughs> and, and, and that's probably what's led to my clinical burnout twice in my career, but not being able to recognize what that feeling is in my gut and uh, acknowledging it. And so how, and it's not, it's not role modeled. Like we did, we don't, we don't have this in our, especially in the charitable sector. I mean, we, we don't, we don't have these conversations. I mean, we are increasingly, but you know, when we were in our 20s and 30s, there was just, we weren't talking about this. We were not talking about emotional intelligence and we were not talking about the impact of, you know, long-term 
toxic or unsafe workplaces or unsafe relationships, unreasonable budgets, leadership. I mean, I think the way we kicked open this door was actually talking about leadership. I think that's the first way I remember the start of these conversations was people being able to say, wait a minute, this is not, I'm being managed, not led. And I don't want that. And that's how we started this. And that was universal. That's a universal experience. Um, Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, but. Do you remember a moment when things shifted for you? Do you remember a moment? I mean, let's talk, let's talk about boundaries. Cause I was just happened to be this morning. Reading Brené Brown's Atlas of the Heart. Mm. Did this book yet? Mm-hmm. And she talks about boundaries and she said, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Yeah. And she also talks about being a boundary bully. And I'm not talking about being a boundary bully. I'm talking about getting to that point where you just had this love for yourself Um that you knew that you could protect yourself and the organization at the same time or the relationship that you're in, but that was there a moment? Do you? Well, I, I think, yes. Um, I also think it's a bit of a cheater because it also happened when I had children. Mm. So when I had kids, I realized that I was not going back to the way that I had been working before I had kids. And I knew that I was not going to be able to, work the way that I had before. And so um, I was able to say, certainly when I started freelancing and then ultimately ended up co-founding Agents of Good, that was all on the table from the very beginning. And it was sort of family comes first, emotional wellness is important and needs to be talked about all the time. And we don't work with jackasses. Yeah, and it, and it was just we're not doing that. And if and at any point, John and I, from the entire time that we work together, we can call each other on these issues. We can we acknowledge when something is the command performance. Hey, I know things are not great right now, or I know we've got a lot on your plate, but I really do need you right now. And that's a card that we use only when we absolutely have to, and we completely trust each other that that's never been abused or overstepped or, um, you know, we honor that deeply. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, Agents of Good continues to evolve as a place in a space like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really, it's harder. It's a, I feel I'm very aware of my privileges that we have this discussion because as a business owner and freelancer and storyteller and with somebody who, John and I have a very unique partnership in the way that we work and the way that our division of labor works. Um, so I really boundary issues at work for me um, are I'm pretty crystal clear on and have been for a while. And I appreciate that's not the same experience as everybody else. Mm-hmm. So what I think where boundaries show up now as we, as the organization has evolved is with clients. Okay. Um, so as opposed to internally, the, the boundary issues that we need to set show up when, we're working with organizations who are trending in the direction that we're not sure about, or some of the feedback that they're giving us is not the way we want to work or hear things or the way we, you know, we're not on the same page. That's when boundaries show up is kind of like, okay, are we going to continue to work with this organization when it's clear that there's been a kink in this hose? And even if it is salvageable, I don't want to salvage a relationship that doesn't actually fulfill. And so, but again, massive privilege for being able to be really value-centered, purpose-centered, and know that I have the complete support of my team in that way. There's a, there's another way to look at that of um, with respect to, to creating boundaries. Boundaries are there to help you realize the relationship with yourself and with others that is optimal. So sometimes I think it's helpful to think not about what you don't want in that relationship, but define the relationship that you do want instead. And it's a bit of a different way of looking at it, but um, I have pretty clear boundaries personally with some of my children, right? I was gonna ask you 
about, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you there, but yeah. I was going to ask you the same question. Do you remember a time when you had to kind of reckon, and as Brené Brown would say, reckon and rumble with, okay, what's going on here? And what are some of the boundaries that I need to establish in order to love myself and this other party at the same time? What was that? What, what about you? You just totally flipped it around. Um, well, for me, well, I, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the divorce, the pending homelessness or getting fired, which like pick yeah. like, I don't know. <laughs> dealer's choice, dealer's choice. <laughs> but, but with respect to, um, First of all, I think turning 50 made a big difference in the last, when I ended my consultancy and went, wait a minute, I'm still like turning myself into pretzels to maintain these client relationships. And oh, I can't say that. Um, and I don't want to do that anymore. So really, and, and, and getting a little bit lost, you know, just stepping back and taking some time, having the privilege to be able to take some time for my own well-being. And that's when my husband, who is also a management consultant, said, what would you do with your clients? So we did a mind map and I had to go back to, how did I get into this sector? What were my initial values when I showed up and I did this as a volunteer? What was I doing then? And how do I find that again? And with respect to um, creating relationships, instead of saying these are these, this is not the kind of relationship I'm going to have. Saying for in our home, you know, we have a very dynamic family. I'm very open and happy to talk about it. We have had some teenage daughters who uh, really went off the rails, and when I say off the rails, I mean off the rails. So. For me, it was okay. Instead of I'm not, I'm not going to welcome them into this life. It's flipping it around, saying, "I deserve to live in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. I deserve to feel comfortable in my own house, mm-hmm. and these are the things that need to be in place for me to to live that way." And I wonder if there might be some way to help folks who are listening who don't carry that privilege, who have to. Um, keep their jobs, uh, think about their work environment in that way, just in in an effort to be helpful to someone. But if you're working in an organization and they're expecting you you to celebrate resilience and compromise your own physical and mental well-being, Mm -hmm. what kind of parameters can you put in place and how might you be able to advocate for yourself? Well, I think the first thing that that anyone would need to do is find your people, find the people around you for whom you can, whether that's inside of your workplace or outside of your workplace. And depending on the organization and depending on the structure or systems of your life, it may end up not being somebody in your um, workplace, but somebody who can see this from the outside. So I would say find find your people first. Um, The second thing that I would say is, and I think it's extremely challenging, excuse me, um, HR is often not a solution. Um, I think that there are H, the whole functioning, especially in the case of anything involving bullying or harassment, HR exists to protect the entity and not the employees. And sure, HR is the one that makes sure that you get your vacation pay and that your bonus is calculated properly. Um, but really, when it comes to your your own rights and your own protection, it's often not your HR department in my experience. And again, especially when it comes to issues that become quite serious or severe. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the other thing, so find your people is the kind of one part of it. And I think the other part of it is really to start to figure out, well, what can you, if you know that what's happening is broken and your boundaries are being pushed Mm -hmm. and you're in a position, you've got that feeling at the back of your neck, or you've got other physical or mental health symptoms that are really showing themselves up. I think you need to really be clear about what are what are the things that are like what's causing this and then how can i put even small roadblocks up first or start from a place of i know that i'm now that i've started to pull on this thread it's going to unravel really quickly but let me think about a couple of things that are the most obvious or the most easy not easy but like these ones i can do quick wins i can make this change yeah, yeah i can make this change yeah. quickly or i could even make this change 
personally. Like, I don't need to talk to my employer about this. I can just decide that there are things that I'm doing to protect myself. Yeah. Um, but it gets a little vague in the when, when it's too generalized, you know? Well, and it, absolutely it does. I'm also thinking, you know, yes, that's one way to handle it for yourself. It might be also helpful for some courageously authentic person to acknowledge that it's probably happening within the organization as well for other people and they may not even know it. So to very compassionately put it forward or talk to your boss and not make it about you, but maybe inquire to someone to, you know, speak truth to power and and maybe inquire to your boss, Hey, I noticed this thing. I'm wondering if you've noticed it too and how we might be able to work together to shine a light on it Mm -hmm. and fix it culturally. Um, I think, I think in this post COVID uh, world, more organizations are absolutely willing to protect and advocate for the mental and physical health of their employees. So I agree. I, I completely agree. And I don't think that's, I don't, and that's one thing I hope that we, do keep mm-hmm. is is the sense of okay well we there is now overwhelming evidence that many nonprofit employees many charitable employees can work effectively on unique schedules that don't involve going to a dumpy rundown office yeah. and having a shitty cubicle space yeah. and having to commute for hours to get there and back just so that you can sit and do the same things most Chunks of fundraising can't be done like that when you're collaborating or brainstorming with a team, when you're working with donors, when you're planning, you know, layered or complicated events or strategies, you, you know, you can't do everything from the privacies of your own homes. Um, But I do think that that some of those bits are changing and same with hours, working hours, Mm -hmm. you know, it would, it would have been, I remember my, in my first job, I, you had to be at the office for eight hours, period. And I'm an early riser. I always have been. So I would get there at 7.30 in the morning. I'd be the first person there often. And then by 3.30, you know, I'm useless in the afternoons. I tell my clients to take my advice after three o'clock at their own risk Mm -hmm. because I'm not at my creative and performance peak. Um, But it was an issue. And it was sort of, I had to explain to people that like, well, I get here an hour and a half before you do. So that's why I'm leaving an hour and a half before you are. Um, but that has all changed. I mean, I think we've, we've realized that people are productive at different times and that if you want to work with your, if you want the best possible fundraisers, that might be that they're working for three hours and then taking a break for three hours and then working for three more hours. And that's a day. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that we're moving more in that way, which I think is going to help with boundary issues. And I think is going to help with physical and mental health outcomes because, if people are designing their lives, even if it's incrementally designing their lives just slightly better, those are building blocks. Those are tools that not, don't build resilience, but just make you better at what you're doing so you don't need to be resilient. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't need resilience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's to be in a constant state of flow. Yeah. Like, just, I've just physically open up our hearts and our lives to each other and live in flow and connection. That sounds so Pollyanna-ish. I don't know that I want to listen back to that, but I know what you mean. (laughs) It's like, Kimberly, did you really say that? It's It's just, you know, Jen, like it's that place where you go, where everything just feels like it fits and you're still doing good and you're having meaningful courageously authentic connections with people and the result of that is often lifting up somebody helping somebody and I think a part of this too is and I mean you know as to you know long-term friends and women of a certain age this is also just stuff that changes as you get older yeah you know I, I I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of 25 year old Jen, who would have listened to this and say, that's great. I still don't know how to put one foot in front of the other one and change some of what's going on around me, which I know isn't right. Um, But I think that's part of the, that's part of the 
blessing and the curse about aging is that you do come to understand that there are things that I couldn't have done. 25 year old Jen couldn't have done some of this. Yeah. And for the, for that reason, that's why this Jen gets to live in this skin today. Um, so there is a real component of this that's, that it sounds a bit like, you know, I remember when I had a baby, people would say things like, Oh, just cherish every minute It just, it flies by. And I remember thinking, are you fucking crazy? (laughs) I'm leaking from everywhere. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I, this thing can't even hold up its own head. (laughs) And like, I'm not my life is not flying and joyful. My life is crawling (laughs) and leaky. Um, but then it changes and you kind of have this like, Oh, I, now I understand what that meant. Mm -hmm. And I'm still glad I heard it because then I could be able to like, Oh, I'm connecting these things. Right. But at the time it feels like, Oh, great. Well, maybe I'll feel that way when I'm an old lady too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what you're touching on the difference between fitting in, which I spent my entire career trying to do and belonging mm. which is where I am now where I just and and there's that shift where you start to just be very comfortable with who you are so you stop trying to fit in yeah as soon as that shift happens and maybe it's with age although there are younger women now who are more empowered than we were um yes Agreed. And I think another thing that you just said that I'll just jump on is that this is also about power. This doesn't have to be about age Mm. because you could be, as you just said, you could be somebody who is standing in their truth from the time that they're a teenager, just because that's how they're wired. And that's how Mm. the dots all connected for them at that time. And I love the energy of those people. I find it remarkable and invigorating. Um, but it really is as much about power as it is about wisdom or is about boundaries or is about age. It's about understanding. And maybe that's where this can reconnect is because when you're, when you're aware of the power or your power dynamics at play, and this is a great conversation we just had with Amanda last week, mm-hmm. when you're aware of the power dynamics at play and you speak truth to that power, then it changes you and it changes the system. Mm-hmm. And if whenever you get there, whether you're young, old, or medium, um, it's when you, it's like your third eye opens and you see this, like, I know what this is now. This is not about my productivity. This is not about what kind of clothes I'm wearing. This is not about whether or not I'm delivering on my targets. This is about a leadership system that keeps me in a certain place because it benefits them and not me. And that's when you open up to okay, well then how am I going to redesign this for me and still meet my goals and still do what I need to do with this organization and still live in this skin, but it's right by me as opposed to being right by the structures at play. So true. So true. And then as we move forward in that conversation of having to correct that power dynamic, I think it's helpful to also I turned my do not disturb on. I don't know why we're pinging. Oh, apologies for pinging. Um, oh, that was going to be really smart, Jen. Damn it. I believe it, babe. I know. No. It's about if we can layer, you know, we see the power dynamic shift. I think about one of my children right now who is complaining about somebody at work. And this person that they work with is, is being very mean and bullish And when my child comes to tell me about it, my first, this is because my year, my word for the year is compassion. So I'm trying to lead with compassion. And my first response was, um, they must be in a lot of pain. Yeah. To be behaving this way. Yeah. Yeah. So we we've been dealing with that too uh, you know with our kids with teenagers who are you know go through these various stages of interpersonal shifts and identity shifts and kind of where do i fit in and i want to belong and not fit in yeah. um i find that that can often be a real i off, i don't often but i have i in that situation i think that's a very important thing to point out is if someone is treating you we also the other thing that we say is shit flows downhill 
So if downhill, yeah, that's if so somebody's if somebody's treating you like shit, chances are someone's treating them like shit, and they're flowing the shit down the hill. Um, and so, and when you are young or new in your career or new in a job, that flow is all headed towards you. Um, and yeah, trying to be compassionate in that situation can be incredibly difficult, but yeah, hurt people well, hurt people, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this gets back to parenting 101, right? And boundaries. It's okay to feel angry. It's not okay to hit me. Yeah. Yes. You know? Like it, and, and that, that approaching uh, how we show up in the world with that kind of power, I mean, it's, it's all right. This sucks, but mm-hmm. it's not on me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We've both taken opportunities to step back. And yet I think, you know, the first time I did that and disappeared, I thought I would all of a sudden become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Did you, do you have any experience like that? Well, yes. I mean, I, I have made the decision um, to change my relationship with social media. Mm-hmm. So I show up to dabble for short bursts and I want to connect with people and share things that I think are interesting and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that the, and I feel like I'm choosing to, I'm choosing to leave a bunch of conversations on the table as a result. Um, and I'm okay with that because I know that I have things to say and I'm, I could continue to share the minutiae of my thoughts and feelings on a variety of different issues, but I became very aware of wanting to show up in a way that was delivering and sharing the kind of content and ideas that I think are important as opposed to a volume game. And I think that unfortunately too much of our shared content and the content space in which we live, not just the charitable sector, but the world on its own. Um, I, I'm not wired to understand the innermost thoughts of billions of people at any given time. I, I just can't do it. I can't. I can't. So I need to be very specific about what I'm choosing to plug into, why, what I hope to say, what I hope to learn, and reflect on it on my own. And I do feel like in some ways I have made myself slightly more irrelevant than other people in my position because I don't do very much blogging anymore unless I really feel strongly about it. In fact, I haven't done very much blogging in ages, as anybody will know if they look at our blog. Um, But thankfully, again, John and I have a relationship where he's got things to say that he wants to talk about right now, and it works out really well. Um, But yes. I, I think that there is a fear of stepping back and disappearing. Um, and I think the way I'm framing it is that I'm disappearing from conversations that I don't have a ton to contribute to anyway. Right. So, so part of that might just be that I know for me, every five years, I transition into something else (laughs) and, and it, part of that, I think, is just going through that introspective phase where you go, well, that's not really the voice. I, that's not my voice anymore. That doesn't feel like relevant to me. And there might be a period of time where you're not quite sure exactly what your voice is or what it is that you're there to, to contribute or how you add value. So we do need to step back and think about that and be intentional about how we show up in every space. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think the other flip side for me too, is that because, and this is what I was saying at the beginning, maybe even before we started recording, I can't remember. Um, But I think because my work is really telling stories for charities and donors, Mm -hmm. um, I feel feel proud to be able to contribute to some of these larger discussions, Mm -hmm. but this is not my, this is not where I spend my, day in and day out. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm a much more tactical fundraiser than I am a thought leader or um, systems or structural person. 
So I, it just also really serves me when I'm feeling particularly impostery or when I'm feeling like I don't really have that much to say, or I'm not comfortable saying something that isn't fully formed for me yet. I've got plenty of other shit to do, (laughs) you know, which, which I appreciate is also different for some people who, whose businesses don't run like that or who don't play that role in their charity. They, they can't focus on other things for as long as they want to. So again, very loaded for me in terms of privilege. Well, we were sitting one fall afternoon and I, I called it puffer fish, you know, and I said, I don't want to, this was around one of the times when I was stepping back and I said, I just can't walk into a conference and puff myself up and just, I don't know if this is even useful, but it's, it's okay for us to retreat so that when we do show up, there's something of substance there. And, um, and guess what? People will still be there because everybody's caught up in their own stuff, right? Totally. And that, and that's the big, I mean, that's one of the big lessons too in fundraising. Your donors aren't sitting at home waiting for you to send your next appeal or send them that major gift proposal. So when you do, you better make sure that it's thoughtful and tailored and personalized and loving and that you've done, you've given, shown them the respect that you've put care and attention into this because it matters. Mm -hmm. And yes, in some ways we can take that same approach to how we show up in the world in terms of the way in which we connect with our peers or share our experiences or share our knowledge is, you know. Do you not think of yourself as a thought leader? Really? Uh, Most days I don't know. I mean, I, I know that I'm, I know that I'm intelligent and I know that I'm good at my job. And I know that I have clients who smash their targets and our work is creatively and storytelling wise exceptional. Um, And I think it stands out from most other firms and frankly, many other charities. I think our work is absolutely top notch. Um, But I don't think of myself as somebody who, um, and I guess thought leader is the wrong term. I don't think of myself as, I don't, I'm not philosophical about it. I'm not as philosophical about it as, as others are. And I don't feel like, I don't feel like I do a lot of teaching. I feel like I, I do more inspiring than teaching. I hope that when I do coaching work or when I work with clients, that they, they learn how to, how to harness their strength and skills in the way that's best for them. Not because I know how to do it because I know how to do what works for me. Does that make any sense? I think so. Listeners, if anybody listens to this, they'll let us know. <laughs> you know, uh, um, I'm stuck. I'm stuck right now because, because we have known each other for such a long time and we do have a tendency to get really personal. <laughs> and yet I know that this is, we're going to record this and share this with the world. So I'm respecting your privacy. And I, yes, <laughs> and especially when it comes to my, my life and my family, um, you know, we have a, I am very protective of my relationship and my kids in the public sphere of the charitable sector and world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it gets this funny thing happens when your kids get to be a certain age, I become very aware that, you know, when my kids were little and I was, you know, this sort of mom about town, running a business, doing what I do, your kids kind of become a little bit of that story. My kids have stood in for charitable photo shoots before yes. my published pictures of your children published pictures. I mean, they're, they're, it sounds rude to call them a prop, but they're a bit of a prop. Like they're serving a function. Um, and then they get to a stage where they don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is about consent mm-hmm. and it's about whether it's my story to tell or theirs. And mm-hmm. even though I do have quite a small 
public presence. I do as a business owner, I do have a public presence. I do have a public accounts that are connected to me and my, what's going on with my family is not a part of that. And yeah. it's, and it's not because I'm not deeply proud of them and inspired by them every single day. It's just because they're not, they're not my tools. And, yeah. and I find that it's easier for me just to only talk about my family privately. Um, and it's funny that I say that because it's obviously not true for my dad. I mean, I talk about my dad all the time. I gush about my dad all the time, but I'm less protective of him than I am of my own children and my own family. Um, so it's not a perfect instrument, mm. but yeah, I'm definitely going to remain very private about my family life. So you have, you know, having said all of that, not just about your family, but everything, um, you have agreed to co-host some podcasts with me. And I have to say, I'm super excited about that. I'm pumped, dude. (laughs) To finally have the opportunity to get into conversation, because as much as you say you're not a thought leader and you're a very tactical person, conversations with you go really deep. Yeah, that's fair you know, you're, you're, you are very curious and very thoughtful um, on a number of things. And so we're going to jump into, into some of that on the podcast. And I just can't wait. It's amazing. You know, it's, it's just, we are, we're building something new. I hope that will model a way forward for people who do share some of the feelings that we've had around being courageously authentic, changing the way we work so that we're more human forward, taking care of our mental and physical health. And instead of thousands of followers on social media, we can have deeper, fewer, but deeper, more meaningful connections with people. Um, Yeah. And I, I'm just, uh, you know, I've, so I'm so thrilled to be co-hosting some of the podcasts because I think that that, that does speak to that, how, the way I want to show up. And, you know, I'm, I'm not at this point, I don't see myself going back to much in-person connection in the charitable sector. It's certainly not for the next little while. Um, and I've really become quite comfortable, more comfortable than I thought I would actually in virtual space and with virtual connections. Um, and so yeah, I'm I'm happy to be a part of the podcast and for what I can contribute and more importantly for what I can learn and how I can start to connect some of these dots from a variety of issues that you talk about and that we talk about, um, you know, to continue to design and redefine my own life and my own purpose and my own way forward. So it's I'm just as much of a learner as I am a podcaster. Can I call myself that now? Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to <laughs> see what you're like when you grow up. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be the first to know. <laughs> Thank you for being with me here today and for sharing uh, so openly. I, you know, I love you and it's so nice to have you here. I love you too. And I'm very happy to be here. And it was a great conversation. And yeah, it's a little nerve still feel a little bit nervous, but no, it's kind of scary. The yeah. best thing is just not to listen to it. I find. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> that's great advice. Not you listeners though. No. Yeah. We'll share it, but we don't <laughs> need to go back and listen to it. <laughs> Thanks Jen. You can look forward to more episodes with Jen and some other amazing women this season. I can't wait to share them with you. Uh, So please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please join our email list at theintersectionhub.ca so that you don't miss a thing. There are so many fabulous conversations coming up and we want you to be part of it. Thank you for being here. See you next time.